Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. If working out and optimizing your workout routine is an important part of your life, then today's episode about the science of blood flow restriction may offer some fascinating insights and inspiration for you. My guest, Dr. Jeremy Lenicky, is one of the leading researchers on practical blood flow restriction training, also known as BFR or occlusion training. Jeremy is going to share his knowledge about the benefits of blood flow restriction, how to apply it during training, and the effects on size, strength, and recovery of muscles. Jeremy Lenicky has a PhD in exercise physiology a master's in nutrition and exercise. He's currently the director of the Kevser Ehrman Applied Physiology Laboratory, and his research group's primary focus is on skeletal muscle adaptations to exercise with and without the application of blood flow restriction. Jeremy is also a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine and a member of the American Physiological Society. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. I'm sure what a lot of the audience would like to know, who, especially those who are just about to get themselves into fitness and bodybuilding, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and also how you first got into the fitness and bodybuilding lifestyle, please? Yeah, I, as a kid, I wrestled probably from the age of five all the way through high school. Towards the end of my high school, I started to really get interested into lifting weights. I was told I needed to get a lot stronger. So I met up with one of my buddies who did a lot of training and he himself was interested in bodybuilding. So we would, I'd start training with him and we'd start looking at all the bodybuilding magazines, things of that sort. So that was probably 2002, 2003. Then I just got hooked on exercise and I thought it was uh, an interesting area. And I became interested in trying to maximize muscle growth, maximize strength, trying to figure out the best ways to do that. That's how I got hooked up with exercise science in college. That was my undergrad degree and master's and then did my PhD in exercise physiology, but it all stemmed from my wrestling background, not being strong enough, got interested in lifting weights. Then I got interested uh, in bodybuilding and all the things that, that come with that. So I did do a little bit of competing. I was, uh, <laughs> pretty mediocre if I'm being honest, but I do the bodybuilding lifestyle. I think it's a very interesting sport. And uh, something that's really interesting about yourself is you are known as the blood restriction godfather. Can you give us an overview about what BFR, blood uh, flow restriction is? Yeah. So essentially you're taking a, a cuff or a wrap and you're placing it around a limb. We generally 
place it at the very top of the arm that's covering the bicep or the very top of the leg around the quadriceps, as high as you can get the, the cuff up. And essentially what you're doing is you're tightening it a little bit, not a severe amount, but a little bit. And what that does is it partially restricts blood flow into the limb. And what it does is it, it essentially makes exercise a lot more difficult. So you can get away with training with a lot lower weight. So typically we think about uh, the recommendations are typically 60 or 70% of the most weight that you can lift in order to see prominent muscle adaptation. With blood flow restriction, you can train around 20 or 30% of your maximum and, and get similar benefits with muscle size, at least. As far, as far as the physiology goes, what actually happens during blood flow restrictions? It's a good question. I'll tell you what we think might happen. We have a partial restriction of blood flow going into the, to the limb, and we have largely an occlusion of blood flow leaving the limb. So all of the, the, the metabolic byproducts that are produced during exercise are actually kept inside the muscle itself. So what we think might happen is all those byproducts that are typically flushed out can't get out of the muscle because we have a restriction of blood flow. So what might happen is, is it, it might make that cross bridge that typically forms for muscle contraction. It might fatigue those, which makes you have to recruit more and more muscle mass to do the same amount of work. And it's thought that high level of muscle activation, in other words, recruiting more and more is, is thought to be pretty important for overall muscle growth. So that's what we think might be occurring. I don't, a lot of people want to know if it's, if a mechanism is different than traditional exercise. And I don't know that's the case. Once we get to the fiber level, I think that how we recruit those muscle fibers is probably a little bit of a different strategy, but at the fiber level, I think all those pathways, all those molecular pathways are probably pretty similar. But that's our working hypothesis. Got it. And I would like to get into uh, more of the microstructure and physiology of a muscle a little bit later, okay. uh, since I have an absolute expert here to pick the brains. What really interests me is nowadays when you go into some of the um, gyms, for example, here in LA, we of course have a big fitness bodybuilding culture here. Now you see people working with blood flow restriction. And for uh, somebody who's uninitiated into the practice, this may look like uh, people who have maybe to make a flippant comment, like people who are ready to go inject heroin because you're tying up your muscles. <laughs> right. So how, where did the practice of BFR start and historically, and where are we at with it now? Yeah, I think blood flow restriction as we use it. So what I mean by as we use it is when we're applying it for the purposes of trying to improve muscle size and strength. So people have been applying cuffs for a long time, for a lot of different reasons. But for this purpose, it probably largely originates out of Japan. There's a guy there who has a blood flow restriction company who did a lot of at least work and promotion for this for a long time. I think that the first published paper was published in 1998, showing that this type of exercise could improve strength over doing the same exercise without blood flow restriction. So it originated out of Japan, and then it slowly made its way to differing places, the United States, Scandinavia. This is where a lot of the work has been done outside of Japan. And I think that now what we're seeing is obviously 
people in the gyms have been starting to apply this because they, they realize that this could be a potential useful tool for them to help maximize some of the muscle adaptations that they're trying to get. But from the research perspective, we're also starting to see that this is starting to become more and more prevalent in a lot of the clinical populations, because there's obviously a, a potential great utility for applying this to people who cannot lift heavy weights at all. So we've seen it go from the research to being applied to the fitness industry and bodybuilding, which it still is, and then making its way into a little bit more of the clinical world as well. Excellent. And let's talk safety for a moment. So for people who are not uh, really familiar with this method, how can it, how safe is it? And also when you begin working with this, how do you safely start uh, incorporating this into uh, your lifestyle? Yeah, I think the, the way I like to think about safety is anytime we do exercise, any type of exercise, there's always a risk involved. So the way I like to think about blood flow restriction, the safety profile is when we do this type of exercise, are we increasing that risk? The risk that's already there, are we increasing it when we apply blood flow restriction? Uh, the totality of literature so far doesn't seem to indicate that's the case. It, it appears to be relatively safe compared to traditional exercise we already recommend. Now, that's with the caveat, of course, that it's applied appropriately. Now, that's a, a big caveat, but I, I guess the concerns that some people have is, does it increase your risk for blood clots when you apply this blood flow restriction and exercise? Right. Does it increase your risk for muscle damage? Does it increase your risk for a hypertensive event? The available literature suggests that it, it doesn't seem to. Now, to be fair, a lot of that work is on normal, healthy individuals, which I suppose is good news for those in the bodybuilding world. We can know that in people like us, it, it seems to be relatively safe, but we can't necessarily apply that to clinical populations. Now, there is some work in clinical populations, which does indicate that it is safe, but it, it, it doesn't have the same amount of evidence that normal, healthy individuals do. So I would say that overall, yes, it, it appears to be relatively safe uh, compared to normal exercise, but we have to understand that there's always going to be a, a level of risk, no matter what exercise that you're doing. I think when we apply blood flow restriction, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that we're applying a partial restriction of blood flow for a short period of time. So this isn't a very a, a acute response because I think a lot of people's initial reaction is blood flow is good. Anytime we're restricting that, that can't be good. And I, I understand that thinking. That was my first thought as well. I think we have to consider that we're applying blood flow restriction for minutes, not for hours, and we're only partially restricting it. So it's true. If you were to clamp it down and leave it occluded for hours, that might lead to some negative things, but that's not what's being done. We're partially restricting it. And then we're doing three to four sets of exercise. Usually on one exercise, maybe a couple exercises in a row once you get used to it. So it's a very acute response. But I, I would say overall, for most people, it appears to be relatively safe. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned before that there's not a lot of data with clinical populations. Just from my perspective, a layperson's perspective, would it not uh, make sense to use this method, for example, for recovery for people who actually have to recover and have to rebuild muscle strengths relatively quickly without being able to lift great weights? Yes, I completely agree. And 
more and more research is moving into that world. Certainly, there's more research coming out in populations every year. And I'm not a clinician. I have some contacts with people who are, who work in that world. And I do know that there's a lot of ongoing trials right now in clinical populations. So we should have a lot better idea on that in the next few years. Great. I'll be very curious to find, uh, learn about the results. And with regards to yourself, you actually did your PhD work in the direct study of BFR. What fascinated you so much about this that you actually basically put your entire focus on it? Yeah. So it actually started at the end of my undergrad. I did an internship at the University of Illinois where I was working in a muscle physiology lab. And while I was there, I was working out at a gym, Gold's Gym in Champaign. And there's a couple of people there who were messing around talking about this idea. And I remember thinking that, to be honest, that this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I just didn't think there was any reason why that should be beneficial. But then I got to reading about it and I actually did my internship project on some of the existing literature on that. That was 2007, 2008, around there. And then when I started my master's, I, that was at Southeast Missouri State, I started doing some work on practical blood flow restriction. And I was just fascinated by an alternative way to kind of improve muscle size and strength, something alternative to what we already have. So traditional high load exercise, that works. I think that needs to be stated and that works extremely well, but not everybody likes to do that and not everybody can do that. So I was interested in just alternatives and just different ways to, to reach the same goal. So that's what led me to that. And then at University of Oklahoma, Dr. Mike Bimben had done some work on blood flow restriction and had published some work on that. So that drew me to him. And that's where I united with Dr. Takashi Abe as well, who's uh, done a tremendous amount of work on blood flow restriction and general muscle physiology over the years. So he's turned into be, uh, become a very close friend of mine. But yeah, it was just the an, an alternative to, to do, doing something different than just high load exercise, uh, because <clears throat> high load exercise works, but again, not everybody likes to do it. And let's talk muscle. There's obvious benefits from having a healthy fit and muscular body, but let's dive, do more of a deep dive. Why is it so important for longevity, for all over health to have a well-developed muscular system? Yeah, I, that's a very tough thing to, to, to study with a randomized controlled trial. I think that a lot of the cross-sectional literature would suggest that muscle mass and muscle strength is favorably linked to a lot of outcomes, <clears throat> a lot of favorable health outcomes. And I think a lot of people would say that having a lot of muscle mass is protective. It helps you with locomotion, but helps you if you have more to lose, if you get hurt, maybe that can help your prognosis. If you were to be bed rested for any amount of time, I think a lot of people will argue that it's the largest side of glucose disposal that you can modify. So it has a metabolic benefit from, from that perspective. So I think that's what a lot of people would say. I think exercise itself is what benefit does that have to health is something I, I've thought about for a long time. And I'm starting to think more and more that one of its biggest benefits is, is that it, it might just help us stay active for a longer period of time. For whatever reason, it does appear that when you routinely exercise and you're routinely physically active, that you might get hurt a little bit less often, and you might have a lower risk for hospitalization, 
et cetera. And all of those things are associated with loss of muscle mass and function. So I, I just wonder if, if one of the benefits isn't just it helps you maintain what you are for a longer period of time over your lifespan. So I definitely think that there's a lot of benefit to exercise and muscle mass and strength and, and maintaining that for as long as you possibly can. Yes, I could not agree more. And just the more regularly I exercise, everything functions better. The focus functions better. And actually, you, I feel like I get much more done, yeah. <laughs> even though I have longer days. It's uh, it's very interesting how that works. I mentioned before, I'd like to dive a little deeper into muscle per se. For those who are already living the life, they will very well know what the following question and what I'm asking about what the answer is. But for those who are just getting into this, can you give us the definitions of fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers, please. Yeah, we typically think about fiber uh, types on a spectrum. So on one side, it's probably on a continuum, meaning that it's probably not as simple as these fast twitch and slow twitch. It's, it's mm -hmm. certainly on a continuum, but we, we do like to talk about it as two different camps. Uh, so you have fast twitch that respond quicker, a little bit more forcefully, fatigue a lot faster. You have slow twitch, which aren't, as, aren't quite as forceful, but are a little bit more fatigue resistant. So when we think about contracting muscle, traditionally, we think about recruiting those uh, lower threshold motor units first, which are typically uh, tend to be maybe those slower twitch fibers. And then as we need more and more help, we recruit the slow twitch in addition to some of those faster twitch fibers. And so a big, something that's being discussed a lot is the comparison of strength versus hypertrophy. Yeah. Does hypertrophy actually lead to strength? Yeah, that's, that's some work we've spent a, a lot of time on the past, probably four or five years now. I would say the traditional thought that people would say is that it probably contributes a little bit. I think most people would say that when you undergo a resistance training program that you have a couple contributions, you have this neural component, and then you have this muscle growth component. I'm of the opinion that I'm not so sure that's the case. I'm not sold on the idea that muscle growth from exercise contributes to changes in strength. Plenty of people will disagree with me and that's okay, but I, I'm just not aware of any experimental data that actually suggests that. I think a lot of people would say it does. And for those people, for coaches or people who are interested in getting strong, if they do think that's the case, then by all means, con continue to uh, do what you think is best. But I can tell you that there's not a lot of evidence that's the case. There's no experimental data at all that suggests that exercise-induced muscle growth leads to exercise-induced muscle strength. So mm -hmm. there's lots of reasons to believe that it could, but to, to, to date, there's no evidence that suggests that it does. And there's actually evidence to the contrary. Interesting. And with regards to a lot of people think when you have a big size muscles, it means that you have great muscular strength. What is actually the, is there evidence that great muscular strength is directly related to the size? Yes and no. At baseline, certainly. So if we were to take like a, a room full of people and we mm -hmm. measure their muscle size mm -hmm. and we measure their muscle strength, what we would find is that on average, people who are bigger tend to be stronger. People who are smaller tend to be weaker. Of course, you will have some people who are small, who are very strong, but the people who are bigger tend to be stronger. I think that's very fair to say. And we have data that suggests that's the case too. 
But that's true in people who are untrained as well as people who are trained, which tells me that maybe it's not an effective exercise. That might be an effect of just development. So I think that's where a lot of this confusion comes from because people will say, look at all this evidence that suggests that muscle size is related to muscle strength. And I'm in complete agreement. But what we, what I'm talking about is when people, when adults begin to exercise and they start an exercise program and they get stronger, what does that do to? And that's where I'm, that's where I'm referring to that there's a lack of evidence that muscle growth causes that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And let's go back to blood flow restriction. I know that a lot of people who are listening now would, uh, they're very curious about how do you actually integrate it into your workout sets, rest periods, rest, reps, and which muscle groups and when to actually, you know, how often to do it. Can you give us a rundown on how this ideally would look like when you begin working with it? Yeah, I think the first thing I'll say is, is that <clears throat> there are certain people who just do not feel comfortable doing blood flow restricted exercise. I mean, for them, I would say you don't need to do blood flow restricted exercise in order to see, you know, quote unquote, optimal adaptations. However, if it is something that you are interested in doing to switch things up, or if there's situations where maybe you're hurt and you can't lift heavy weights, or maybe you just mentally don't have the focus that day to lift heavy weights, or you're just trying to mix it up so you stay motivated, then there's a couple of different ways that you can apply it. Um, one, you could do it just on the days that you don't generally feel good or when you're feeling banged up, or you can actually program it into your exercise. There's probably not a wrong way to do it. I think the as far as how to apply it, if you're in a research setting, we typically apply it with modified blood pressure cups. That way we can know what the pressure is. That's obviously not very practical for most people. So one of the ways that, that we've tried to get around this is by using elastic knee wraps or elastic cuffs pulled at different lengths of the limb circumference. So that's another way, but there's not a, a great way yet to apply practical restriction other than just try to apply it snugly. <laughs> so that, that's not very scientific, but I think you just need to apply with the idea that you only need to restrict about, you only need to apply it to a pressure of about half of that required to completely cut off blood flows. If you're applying it and you're already in pain, then it's way too tight. Um, a lot of the discomfort should come in response to that metabolic buildup from exercise. So what I like to do is I like to tell people to apply the cuffs and use the amount of repetitions that they get from the exercise as a guide for how much restriction there is. And what I mean by that is if we have an exercise, let's say the leg extension. So you would take the wrap, you'd apply it at the very top of the limbs. And one of the things that we know is for muscle adaptations, the pressure doesn't need to be all that precise, meaning that if we get anywhere between 40 and 80 and 90%, so a wide range produces a very similar adaptation, at least for muscle. So I think that's good news. So it just means that we need to get close. If we have an exercise and we know that the load is low, then we should be able to get close to around 30 repetitions, maybe a little bit more on that first set of exercise. If you can't get close to that, then there's one of two things that's going on. One, you either have the load way too high or the cuffs are way too tight. 
So you, you got to, you know, do a little bit of self-experimentation there. But if you're doing close to 30 reps in the first set, close to 15 reps, close to 15 reps on the second and third set, you're probably got a pretty good pressure there. So I like to use kind of goal repetitions uh, as a guide to help me gauge how much uh, blood flow restriction there is. It's a very rough indication, but it, it's something. So it, if you're applying, if you have a low load and you're only doing 10 repetitions on the first set, then the wraps are way too tight. You need to be getting around 30. But yeah, so I, I think my long convoluted answer is you can apply a cuff or a wrap. You just need to get partial restriction. The exercises that you can do, you can pretty much do it on everything. I think it's generally probably better on single joint exercises, such as a bicep curl, a tricep extension, leg extension, leg curl. Although there is some suggestion that it does also benefit kind of proximal muscles. Like you can do the chest press and have some benefit to the chest musculature. You can do some squats and potentially have some benefit to the glutes, even though both of those muscles aren't directly under restriction. But generally, I think single joint movements are, are where it probably has the biggest thing for the buck. I generally recommend around four sets. So shooting for around 30 repetitions for the first set and then close to 15 for the next two or three. And then the fourth set, you might not be getting very many at all. But that's one way to do it. Another way is just to do four sets of as many repetitions as you can. So that's perfectly fine too. Maybe you could just implement both of those. You can probably train this way a little bit more frequently than you can traditional exercise, but I would still probably only hit a muscle group two or three times a week. A muscle can only respond so much anyway, but I think it can be applied in a lot of different ways. And the rest periods, I typically recommend 30 seconds. Some people like to go up to a minute in between each set. So it's all personal preference. Great. Those are some really good considerations to keep in mind, uh, especially when you start working with blood flow restriction. Now, what about the application for BFR if you look at the difference in training for athletes and normal people? Yeah, there's data in both. The vast majority of data is certainly done in, in normal, untrained individuals. That's certainly true. We see many of the similar benefits in those who are trained, though, and there is some indication that it might also be useful in some athletic populations, but certainly probably need a lot more data for that. But I, I think that any population that, that might be able to benefit from a lower low alternative to try and improve strength, endurance, um, and muscle size, I think could conceivably use this as a potential tool. Although I think the, the thing to keep in mind is, is that given that you're using a low load, you will certainly see increases in strength, but there'll be a lot less than that of high load exercise. So you will see a change in strength, but not to the same extent as if you were training exclusively with a heavy load. So a lot of times people who are using this in real life, will they'll train normally, but they'll also incorporate some days of blood flow restriction. That way they're maximizing both of those things. Great. And where do you see BFR training, let's say, in the next five years? What are things that we may be able to witness there? I think a lot of the research is probably, again, moving into that clinical world to see what populations is this going to be useful for? What populations is it not useful for? And what, what are some contraindications that we've observed from applying it to a lot of different clinical populations? So I think from that, We'll also learn a lot of things about people 
how this is being applied to athletes. So in the United States, at least, and I know in, in certain football clubs in Europe, blood flow restriction is being applied as a rehabilitation tool. So I think we'll also learn a lot from that, from differing things that different clinicians are, are, are using and what they're seeing when they actually apply it in real life. So I think that we're going to learn a lot about blood flow restriction in the next you know, three to five years in the clinical world. I think in the research world, we'll probably learn a little bit more about how we think it might be working. I think one of the things that we're interested in is the cardiovascular side. That's one of the things that we're interested in our lab currently with blood flow restriction. So what effect does this have on long-term blood pressure and long-term changes in blood flow, et cetera? So I think we'll learn a lot about that. But I think the, the bigger point will be is where is this actually useful in clinics? Um, and for whom, because there's this, it's obviously not going to be beneficial for every single uh, clinical ailment. And there's going to be a lot of things that we learn where it's, you'll apply it to a certain type of population and realize very quickly that, Hey, this was, we got to be very careful with this population. So I think that will be useful information too. So I have no doubt that it will be beneficial for certain populations, but I'm more interested to see who it's not beneficial for. I think that'll also be useful. Absolutely. And in your own lab, what kind of experiments would you like to do if basically the sky was the limit? Yeah, lots of one, lots of different ones. I'm, I'm interested in the application of blood flow restriction by itself and what that might do clinically. There's some data, not a lot, but some that suggest that just applying the cuff itself without muscle contraction might actually have some benefit on slowing down the loss of muscle adaptation following surgery, say, or, or following uh, mobilization. So I'm very much interested in that. Now, I'm limited in that sense because I'm not a clinician. So I need to be very careful with getting outside of what my actual training is. But if I had unlimited resources, that's what I would, that's what I would focus initially. But I'd also like to focus on uh, something that we have been focusing on, but maybe expand it into trying to figure out a, a better way to implement this to the general public. In other words, what, uh, something we've called practical blood flow restriction, which is getting the, the normal individual who doesn't have the, the resources to spend a lot of money on expensive equipment to apply this. So what are some better ways that we can do it? So there's lots of ways that you can do it, but I'm not convinced that we, we have a very good way to necessarily appropriately control the pressure. So I'd be interested in expanding kind of those investigations as well. Great. I wish you the absolute best of fortune and may you be showered with the resources <laughs> you need. <laughs> I appreciate it. And uh, there's a question I like to ask every guest and that concerns the practices that have most in a beneficial way affected their lives, whether it's uh, physically, mentally, or spiritually. So in your case, of course, BFR is one of them. Is there any other practice that you could share with us? That's benefited my life? Yes. I, I, that's a good question. I, I think that, I guess, exercise in general and training, but for indirect reasons. So Exercise and training led me to the University of Illinois, where I met some of the best friends that I currently still have. It led me to do a master's degree and then a PhD. That's where I've been able to network with a lot of different people and then meet a lot of different people from around the world who have become close friends. 
and then lead me to my current position at the University of Mississippi, where I'm able to research for a living, teach graduate students, work with my own students in my lab. And that's pretty awesome for me, to be honest. It, it 100% is my, led me to my dream job where I get to work with students who challenge me and I can, we can develop each other as we're progressing through to their graduation. So yeah, I would say that all of that came back from the just trying to get a little bit bigger and stronger and becoming a little bit more curious. And all along the way, just meeting different people who have helped me out tremendously to be able to get to where I am today, because you have those mentors all along the way. And then currently as well, that you, you meet and they can have a big impact on you. So yeah, I would say that all came from just an interest in getting bigger and stronger and then just meeting a lot of amazing people along the way, then landing me here where I get to work with students year round on trying to do good science and develop and think about things differently. That's wonderful. And uh, just a testimony to how when you start to actively improve one area of your life, for example, with exercise, how it improves all other areas of your life and basically opens up completely new worlds. So for those people who'd like to learn more about you, where can they find you? Where can they reach out to you? Um, I, I'm probably, you can reach me on Facebook. I think there's only one Jeremy Linicky on Facebook. Um, on Twitter, it's at JP Linicky. It's the same handle for Instagram. I, I'm more inter interactive on Twitter, although I've become less and less interactive over the past few years as social media has become what social media has become. But Twitter is probably the best way to, to reach out to me. Uh, I do respond and I, I do try to follow what different people are doing with science. And that, that's where I share a lot of our work on both Twitter um, as well as Instagram. But I like Twitter more than Instagram because I'm a computer person. I like to type and I, I'm not a big social media person on my phone. So I struggle with Instagram. But yeah, I think Twitter's probably the most interactive. Excellent. Jeremy, thank you so much for taking time today to be with us and share from your world and expertise. This was a really great conversation. Uh, and I hope we reconnect again very soon to take a deeper dive. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.